Well, I'm picking up right where Steve left off. Steve left off last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, which really prompted confession in us. Now, a verse passage like yes, last week that we got into uh, is really easy to skip over. And so that's why we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, because it prevents us from being able to skip over passages like Steve taught on last week. But if last week's prompted confession in us, then this week prompts repentance in us. And repentance is really this idea of changing. God desires to change us. And growing up in a society where repentance could possibly leave a bad taste in your mouth because of what you've seen on TV or people that you've passed by on the street corner screaming repentance, uh, and that is not necessarily the intent that God had for this. Because God loves us too much to leave us in our sin, so he desires to change us. One definition I came through uh, when I was studying this passage is, we change our mindset and God changes our ways. And so that's what repentance is going to look like uh, in our lives. And God desires for us to be changed by his word. And so we're going to learn about being changed by Christ in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. But first, let's learn about how we learn about uh, the gospel. The first thing he says in verse 20 is, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So he's contrasting the worldview uh, that produced in us a hard and calloused heart with the ways that we can learn Christ and what that d- produces in us. And so we're going to see this unfold. He says that it's not the way that you learned Christ. This is implying the gospel, the good news of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is the fact that Jesus died upon the cross and took off our sin off of our shoulders and put it on his shoulders. He took off our condemnation from our sin and bore it and clothed himself in that. And in return, through his resurrection, he clothed us in his righteousness so that we could be declared righteous or justified in the eyes of the Father. And that's the gospel message that is good news for you and that's good news for me. But he continues on to talk about how we are to learn. In verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. This idea of assuming, meaning that Paul hadn't been with them for seven years. So he's made an assumption that they not only heard the gospel and believed in it, but over these last seven years, they're continuing to grow in their relationship with Jesus and learning how to follow him. And that was the assumption that Paul made. And the way that they were going to learn this comes through hearing and through teaching God's word. This idea of hearing, meaning that we have ears that are fully attentive to who Jesus is, where our ears are fully attentive to the realities of the truths that are proclaimed in God's words. We don't have selective hearing. Sometimes you may hear that in your household, that your kids have selective hearing, or your wife or your husband have selective hearing, and they only hear the things that they want to hear. We're to approach God's word differently than this. We're to have ears that are fully attentive to the realities of God's word, because there's going to be truths in God's word that may be hard to understand or hard to comprehend or things we wrestle with, but God is calling us to hear them and to listen to them. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 47, he says this, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. We have to have ears that are fully attentive to the reality of who God is, and it's 
as we open God's word, we spend time in God's word, we memorize God's word, we read God's word, that we learn to hear God's voice and learn how to follow him. But he also says that not just hearing, but also being taught by him. So we have to be taught by God's word, and that happens as we tune into a live stream, as we open our Bibles throughout our weeks, and we read God's word. First Thessalonians 4, verses 2 and 3, 3 says this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Meaning that God's will for you and I is to be taught by God's word. And that as we are taught in God's word, it teaches us to uh, unfold the will of God uh, in our lives by abstaining from sexual immorality. One of the reasons I think we're growing up in such a hyper-sexualized society is because it distorts the very will of God in your life and in my life. And so God is calling us to abstain from this through his teaching of his word. 2 Thessalonians verses 2 and 15 says this, brother, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Meaning that if we're going through the context here is suffering, God's calling us to stand firm, to hold fast to the truths that we have been taught, that we read about, that we're learning about. And when we do that, it produces in us, it renews us inwardly as we pursue him and stand fast with him. But the reality of learning, teaching, And hearing God's word is we cannot divorce them from each other. They have to be interconnected with each other. For if we try and become a teacher of God's word and not a learner of God's word, it produces in us a self-righteousness and a distancing of ourselves from those that we're communicating to. So whether you're a mentor at Ecclesia, you teach a Bible study, or you're a parent, we have to keep connected the learning and the teaching component. For example here, let's pretend uh, I'm driving down Beltline, and in the back is my three-year-old son, Griffin, and somebody cuts me off on the Beltline, and I start yelling and screaming at them. What I am teaching my son, Griffin, is that these people, um, what I'm teaching my son, Griffin, is that these people that I'm screaming at are inferior to me and that I am superior to them. And what he is learning is that they do not deserve respect. And that's, that's what can happen when we divorce teaching from learning. And so we have to keep those interconnected in our relationship with Christ to prevent self-righteousness from building up in your heart and my heart. Uh, then he ends verse 21 with this phrase, as the truth is in Jesus. So the foundation of where learning can take place is it has to be connected to the truths that are found in God's word. It has to be connected to Jesus being that truth. For we cannot learn how to be married, we cannot learn about parenting, we cannot learn about business, we cannot learn about finances outside of the foundation of God's truth, which means we need to know God's truth and filter everything through that lens. The reality is, as we're growing up with there's an unlimited amount of podcasts about these topics, there's an unlimited amount of articles that we could read, and we need to make sure that we're filtering them through what God's word has to say so that we are founding our truth in Jesus. The other thing that can happen is life without the truth of Christ can lead to cynicism, meaning where we become cynical towards truth and we begin to believe we can't know truth or 
it, there is no absolute truth and there's only relative truth. And so what's true for me may be uh, not true for you and what's true for you may not be true for me. But the reality is, is we need to be founded in the foundation of Jesus being our absolute truth in our lives. First John 2 verse 4 says this, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If we say we know him, we need to follow him and it's founded in the very truths of God's word. So when God's word reveals truth in us and we see that our lives do not line up with that truth, it reveals an area where we need to change or we need to repent. And so we're going to see how this transformation, how this change or how this re, uh, repentance takes place in verses 22 through 24. And he gives three ways that change takes place in your life and in my life. The first one is found in verse 22, which is where we put off our old self. He starts off verse 22 by saying to put off your old self, meaning that we're called to cast aside, to lay aside our old self that has been defined and tainted by sin. Uh, early on in this pandemic, uh, we had a nurse at Ecclesia who felt called by God to go into one of the hot zones of where COVID-19 had taken place and to go treat patients who had been infected with this virus. And during his time, while he was on shift, he would have to wear these suits that were airtight to where not even oxygen could get in. And so they had to blow oxygen in through uh, his suit so that he could have clean air to breathe. And when he would get off of his shift, he would have to go into this room and go through this process of casting aside his suit to where he would take off his suit because it was no longer useful for him or even beneficial for him to keep it on because otherwise it would contaminate him or contaminate those that he came in contact with. And this is the mentality we are to have with our sin nature. This is the mentality we are to have with our sin in our lives is we're to cast it aside and lay it aside because Christ cannot be added into our sin. Because of attributes that are going to be talked about at the end of this passage, such as righteousness and holiness, Christ cannot coexist with our sin nature. So we have to cast it aside and lay it aside and to get rid of it. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Friendship with the world is hostile towards God. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is graphic language in Romans chapter 6, but it pictures the fact that we are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. And through that enslavement, it begins to be our master that we do whatever it tells us to do. And God uses some very graphic language in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, that says we are to crucify it which was a very graphic picture to those in the Roman church because they had literally seen people be crucified. And this is the tenacity of how we are to deal with our sin. We're to put it off in this way. He says in verse 22, uh, which belongs to your former manner of life. It was our old conduct. It was the way that we, it was our mode of opera, uh, apparatus. It was the way that we lived our lives. And this characteristic was characterized by numbness, uh, ignorance and rebellion against God. 
I don't know about you, but if you've ever woken up uh, in the middle of the night and you were sleeping on your arm and it was cutting the circulation off your arm, the moment you wake up and you realize that your arm is numb, you quickly remove yourself off of that so you can restore circulation back into your arm. And that's what's to happen when we come to this realization where sin is a part of our old nature and we have a relationship with Christ. We're to cast it off. We're to lay it aside because it's a part of our former manner of life. He also says that our former manner of life uh, is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires meaning that it's deceptive. It's contrary to the very truth of God's word. So if God's truth reveals areas we need to change, deception deceives us saying that we do not need to change. And the reality of deception is this. It overpromises and never delivers. Deception overpromises and never delivers. At the very beginning of humanity in Genesis chapter 1, God tells them in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Fast forward two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3. It says there is a serpent who was more crafty or cunning, meaning he was deceptive, he was manipulative, and he was trying to manipulate God's people, Eve and Adam, into doubting and breaking God's command. God's command was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could do anything else in the garden, but that was the one command that they were not to do. And so the serpent comes and says, did God really tell you not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And then he also says, he doesn't want you to do that because he knows that you will become like God. What likeness were they already made in? God's likeness. What image were they already created in? God's image. So it was promising them something that they already had, but it failed to deliver because it alienated them from a relationship with God and distanced them from because sin had entered into that picture. The reality of sin is in our old self is it overpromises and never delivers. Over the last two months, I've noticed something that alcohol sales have gone up by 40% meaning that too many of us are turning towards a bottle looking for it to promise something that it fails to deliver every time. And when you pick up that bottle, it promises you this. If you drink me, I'll help you relax. If you drink me, I'll help you chill out. If you drink me, I'll help the pain go away. If you drink me, I will help you uh, become numb. And the problem with that is when you drink it and you get drunk and the next day you wake up, All of your problems, your relationships, everything is exacerbated and made worse, and you're in in a greater financial difficulty than before. And so it overpromises and never delivers. And that's just one example of what our sin nature can do to you and I. And what deception produces in us, verse 19, we learned about last week, produces in us a hard and a calloused heart. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I didn't grow up saying, I want to have a hard and callous heart. Nobody, uh, no matter if they're a Jesus follower or not, says, I desire to have a hard and callous heart. And so if this is its end game, why would we want to pursue it? The other thing it tells us is in chapter 5, verse 6, is that its end game is the wrath of God, meaning that we're, no longer, we're not under Christ if we live in our worldview and we don't have a relationship with him. We are living under the wrath of God, and that's its end game. So if a hard and callous heart and deception has no future for our lives, then why do we desire to stay in it? Why do we desire to continue to live in our old life, 
There's got to be something else we need to do, and it's to put off our old self. The second thing he tells us uh, to do that will help change take place in our life is in verse 23. He says this, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. We are called to be renewed by the spirit of our minds. The reality of our mind is it means that it has a disposition or has a mindset. And our mindsets can change based upon the environments that we're in, based upon the people that we interact with, based upon the things we watch on TV or the music that we listen to. This is a silly example, but I think it illustrates it really well. I enjoy listening to country music. So for some of you, you're cheering right now on your couches. For others of you, you're judging me right now. But whatever the case may be, country music has influenced me to want to drive a truck. It's influenced me to want to live in the country in Springfield. And it's influenced me to want to go fishing. That's the mindset, the spirit of the mind that God or that country music has had on me. The truth is also that our mindsets can be tainted by the world's value and the world's system. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To be made new. Our minds need to be made new. They need to be transformed. And this is not just a one-time act. This is a continual act that takes place. And so our mindset needs to be formed not by the world standards and being conformed to the world's value system, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we spend time in God's word. We open it up. We memorize it. We meditate upon it. We think about it. God's word begins to renew our minds. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This talks about the process of renewal taking place. When we experience hardship and suffering outwardly, sometimes we get injured, sometimes we uh, fall short. But day by day, as we persevere and make a choice to follow Jesus, day by day, our mindset is being renewed. God begins to change the neural pathways in our brains from a scientific level and begin to align them with God's will and God's purpose for your life and my life, and it begins to renew us inwardly through this process. And renewal happens when we put off our old self, as the verse just before tells us, and we begin to allow God's Spirit to have this renewal process take place in our lives. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How does the renewal take place? When we begin to change our mind towards something, God begins to change our ways and he renews our spirit inside of us and begins to allow transformation to take place in your life and my life. And this is renewal. But not only are we to, number one, put off our old self, Number two, we're to be renewed. But number three, we put on the new self. We put on our new self. Verse 24, and to put on the new self. So this idea of putting on means is this is your new person. This is your new character. This is how you're defined by. It gives this picture of putting on a new set of clothes. 
Growing up, between my eighth grade and heading into my freshman year of high school, uh, my brother and I loved to wakeboard. We would wakeboard three nights a week. We would go ride amateur competitions some weekends. Uh, We would just love to spend time on the water wakeboarding. And one of the premier wakeboarders at the time was by the name of Scott Byerly, and he had this board that had a fiery American flag with an eagle through the middle of it. And just before my freshman year started, I found a T-shirt that matched my board, which was that Scott Byerly board. And I loved that t-shirt. I wore that t-shirt on my first day of school, and I was eager to identify as a hyperlight wakeboarding kid heading into high school. I wore that shirt every single week uh, in the fall sessions of high school. I even wore it on picture day because I was super excited, which gives us this idea that we're to be excited about having a new identity in Christ. We should be excited about putting on Christ every single day in our lives. But the reality of our putting on a new self is we can't just delete our old self without adding something else. We have to delete our old self and we have to add our new identity that's found in Jesus Christ. And this is talked about throughout the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14 says this. Besides this, we know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is where we see that uh, subtraction and addition taking place. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we're called to delete and subtract the very things that he listed off, and then we're called to add and put on our new identity in Christ Jesus. One more passage I want you to see, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It's to the right in your Bible, past uh, the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're to put off our old self and his practices and the, the ways that we live our lives. And we're to call to put on Christ Jesus, meaning that we have a new identity. We have a new purpose that is formed through this process. I'll give you a couple of uh, examples of this. Maybe not this year, but if you've been to a graduation and during that graduation uh, before, they would just go to class and they'd probably wear jeans or uh, sweatpants and sweatshirts. But when it came time for the actual graduation, all of the graduates would put on a gown with a cap with a tassel. And as they would walk across that stage, it would be like this example of the old season of being a student is no more, and now they're a graduate entering into the workforce. Or another person, maybe they're a civilian, and they're just walking around, and they're hanging out, and and they're doing their own career path. And then they enter into the military, 
And then through basic camp, basic training, they get to shave their head and they put on a uniform. And that transformation from being just a civilian to now a soldier in the military pictures this identity transformation that takes place. Or if you've been to a wedding uh, and everybody dresses up, but there's one individual who's allowed to wear white, and that's the bride. And as the bride walks down the aisle, for some of them, uh, which is less popular today, they wear a veil. And as they walk down the aisle and they get to the end of the aisle, the veil is taken back by the father or the man who walks her down the aisle, symbolizing that she is no longer single. And now she has a new covenant relationship with her husband. And she's in this marriage relationship, symbolizing the transformation from the old to the new in that new season of life. And so that's what this picture takes place, is this new self, this new person, this new identity. This idea of new self is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. Uh, For example, the word regeneration carries the same idea. The word new creation carries the same idea. In John chapter 3, the uh, phrase born again carries on to the same idea of a new identity that takes place. In the Bible, uh, they would literally uh, change somebody's name from their old self to represent their old self becoming new, where Abram becomes Abraham, where Abram leaves his family unit and he begins to go into the will of God for his life and becomes the father of a great nation through Sarah and through his son, Isaac. And it was through Abram following in obedience that he becomes Abraham and becomes the father of the nation of Israel and that transformation that takes place there. And then his grandson, Jacob, is transformed and his name is changed to Israel, where Jacob would deceive his father and he would trick his brother and he was manipulative. And then through a relationship with God, he is transformed and his name becomes Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel are birthed from his line. In the New Testament, you have Cephas becoming Peter, where Cephas was a, one of the 12 followers of Jesus, and he was always putting his foot in his mouth, and he was always getting ahead of uh, Jesus. And he denies Jesus three times at Jesus' greatest form, a time of Jesus' greatest need. And then through that transformation, Jesus restores him, and he, and he changes his name to Peter, and he uses Peter to to proclaim one of the greatest evangelistic messages where thousands of people come to Christ in Acts chapter 2. The last example of this new identity that's formed is this guy named Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of God's church. And as he persecuted and killed Christians, uh, God met him on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his horse literally and saved him, invited him into a relationship with Jesus and changed his name to Paul. And Paul becomes this great evangelist in the first century that really lays the foundations of how we see the church functioning today. And books like Ephesians that we're in right here are the result of Saul becoming Paul and invited into a relationship with Jesus. And what we see in each one of these is we can change what we do, but we can't change who we are. Only Jesus can change who we are We can change what we do. We can change our mindset. We have a role to play in that. But ultimately, Jesus is the one who changes who we truly are in this process. So we put on our new. It's it's a symbol of this transformation. We subtract our old self. We're renewed. We're putting on our new. And it says that we're created after the likeness of God. 
We're created after the likeness of God. Do you realize how much of a position of privilege this is for you and I? Because the stars, the moon, the sun, the earth, the plants, the animals, none of those things are made in God's image. Only you and only me. People are the only part of God's creation that are made in his likeness or made in his image, which is a position of prominence. It's a position of authority. It's, it's a great responsibility for you and I to be into that position, which means that you and I are not defined by what happened to us as a child. It means that you and I are not defined by what took place in that toxic relationship, meaning that you and I are not defined by our 401k. You and I are not defined by the job we have or the job that we lost. We are defined by our new identity that we have in Jesus. And through that identity in Jesus, we begin to discover who we truly are. And we begin to live those things out with a purpose that cannot be taken away from us, an identity that cannot change in us. And he finishes off verse 24 with this, in true righteousness and holiness. Notice that he doesn't say, become righteous and become holy, and then you will be made new. That's religion. That's what religion promises you and I. But a relationship with Jesus says, become new, and after you are new, pursue holiness and pursue righteousness. I don't know about you, but I want to follow a God who allows me to rest in becoming new and then out of the overflow of my gratitude for what he's done for me, I pursue holiness and I pursue righteousness out of a love relationship that I have with him. There's great peace, there's great rest, there's great comfort in serving and following a God in that way. But these are attributes, I don't want to just overplay these things, but these are attributes that God possesses, that he is righteous and he is holy which is why that our old sin nature cannot be added to Christ, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Our old nature cannot be added in there because God is holy, meaning he's perfect, he's pure, and he's righteous, he's just, which means that he has to judge sin because that's what a judge does. He has to act right when that's what the law says. And so it motivates us to change and to be transformed through this process in our lives. I want to look at a couple of verses that explain righteousness and holiness to us. Righteousness is this, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is who our God is. He's just. He's just in all his ways. He's without uh, uh, iniquity. He's faithful. He's upright. He's perfect. And that's how he makes the decisions. Psalm 145 verse 17 says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Every way that he goes about is righteous and just in God's eyes. And he calls us to this. Holiness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Another verse says, Be holy for I am holy. So God, are, these are attributes that God has, and he's calling us 
to take on these attributes because we're created in his likeness, we're created in his image, and we're to pursue these things in our lives out of the overflow of the relationship that we now have with Christ because of the new identity that we have. As we do that, our ways should become more righteous. The decisions we made should become more just. We should fight for justice in the unjustice of this world out of an overflow of our relationship with him. We should be just in the decisions that we make. We should pursue holiness, being pure both inwardly in our motivations and our intentions of our heart and our behavior with people. We should pursue holiness and holiness with God in our relationship, restoring intimacy with him. And when we do uh, pursue these things and we grow in our intimacy with him and we grow closer to him, he's going to reveal unjust ways in our lives. He's going to reveal unrighteous and unholy ways in our lives. And when he does that, we have to put off our old self because they're identifying with the old manner of self. And as we do that, God renews our spirit and God renews our mind. And then we put on and we're reminded of the identity that we already have in Christ. And so as we wrap up this morning, this is what I want to encourage you with. During this first song, I want you to pray Psalm 139, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any any wicked way in me. And if there is, that you would begin to uh, have God, by His Spirit, reveal those things to you, and you begin to confess those things. And when we come back up here after this first song, we're going to take communion together, and I want you to confess those things and be grateful that Jesus has clothed you, not in your sin, but in His righteousness. And that you can confess those things to him and get right with him. Let's pray.